You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with The Washington Post, and I am joined for one last merry-go-round by Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated. Rob's taken off for The Ringer to uh, contribute to their NBA coverage next week, but he graciously uh, decided to uh, get back in the saddle with me for one more episode. If you guys didn't check it out, Rob and I, uh, on Monday's episode, Tuesday's episode, we... Uh, went down memory lane, our seven years together at SI, some of the highs, the lows, our regrets. We covered the whole emotional gamut at the end of uh, the last episode. So check that out. Rob, enough touchy-feely stuff. We're talking hoops today, okay? And there's a lot going on in the NBA. Let's start somewhere where we don't normally acknowledge. We just kind of pretend it doesn't exist. That would be New York City and the Knicks. They've been in the news this week because after their 10th game, the front office, uh, Steve Mills and Scott Perry uh, took to the podium after their 10th game for a little bit of a State of the Union address. Uh, If that sounds ominous, it was. Uh, They essentially uh, were making noise that uh, the team was not performing up to standards, which immediately led to speculation that Coach David Fisdale could be in trouble. Now, Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN.com wrote in the wake of that uh, press conference, uh, he writes... Uh, New York Knicks president Steve Mills has started to lay the internal groundwork for the eventual dismissal of coach David Fisdale. League sources told ESPN Mills is selling owner James Dolan on a roster constructed to be highly competitive in the Eastern Conference, leaving Fisdale vulnerable to an ouster only weeks into the second season of a four-year contract that league sources say is worth $22 million dollars so rob uh, are you buying or selling that david fisdale is what ails the knicks and he's the reason they're off to a slow start <laughs> i mean david fisdale is not a perfect coach i think he's had his issues with rotation management when he was the coach of the grizzlies and he certainly had that with the knicks as well in terms of finding the right mix of players in the right order and the right combinations but i I mean, with this team, he would be like my my 29th concern, given the roster, the state of things, the ownership. I mean, firing your coach or moving on from your coach is one way to address kind of institutional rot, but it's not exactly the way I'd go about it. Okay, so you said 29th on your list of concerns. I don't need 28, okay? But briefly, like, what's your top three? Like, if we're assigning blame here, and I think there's, you know, a reasonable degree of, of blame to be assigned. Look, they're 2-9 and nine right now, one of the worst records in the entire NBA. Chris Stapps, Porzingis, and the Dallas Mavericks are coming back to Madison Square Garden tonight. We're taping this on Thursday afternoon. That's going to be a high-profile showdown. If Dallas wins that game, that one's going to you know, hit a lot of Knicks fans in the heart. Do you have sort of your, your blame order? You know, If you're shooting the arrows, who's catching them? Well, I think it starts with James Dolan always, because when you're talking about multiple regime changes, you know, multiple eras of Nick basketball, and he's the one constant, I think that's where the blame always has to start. But beyond that, I think it's more of an organizational focus, and that starts with Dolan on taking some of these big swings. The idea that if you at any point want to start your free agency period with an apology for not getting a Kevin Durant type player, 
that kind of means that your your whole framework was broken. You know, like I, I think if that was no, your, you're so mad about that apology, Rob. And you've brought this up multiple times, and I think it's great. Um, it's a it's a red flag of all red flags, right? It's sort of like the scarlet letter. Like you're going out there with the red A on your chest, apologizing because <laughs> you completely struck out at free agency. It's a bad look. Well, and, and to do that, and then proceed to sign a bunch of players who don't make sense together and then try to recalibrate by saying, oh, no, this was our plan the whole time. I think that's kind of the problem with where they are now and with with Steve Mills and, and some of the reporting internally saying that, oh, oh no, this is actually a good roster. We expected this roster to be better than it is now because you can really only pull that the wool over anybody's eyes with that for so long. Like, this is not a roster that makes contemporary basketball sense. So the yeah, idea I, that you would even try to sell that lie, I don't know what you hope to achieve because it's only going to buy you a matter of weeks at best or months at best. Well, yeah. So I have a couple of problems with their offseason strategy. First of all, they told us that the main point of the offseason strategy was flexibility, right? It was everybody on short-term contracts so they could come back in and, and be a, a factor on future free agents. That initially was the goal of their summer, right? To not get tied up in burdensome deals that are going to like handcuff them and uh, keep them from you know being able to maintain their positive momentum as a as their young players built. That was supposed to be the goal. Then we fast forward two months, and probably because James Dolan's getting impatient as he always does, the story changes to oh now we're actually trying to win. We really like our roster and, and the coach is underperforming. That is just logically inconsistent. Uh, the first part was somewhat accurate. It wasn't uh, a reasonable explanation for what they did this summer. They still had a terrible summer, uh, you know, based on the types of guys that they got and how those players fit together and how those players really complemented their young your, their young guys, whether it's Dennis Smith Jr., RJ Barrett, Mitchell Robinson. Like, I don't really feel like most of the guys they signed this summer really made those guys' lives better in any meaningful way. So uh, the front office there's no question, has just kind of been all over the map, changing their stories. And it's very, very difficult for any coach to operate in that environment. Now, Rob, I did this mental exercise where I was like, okay, let's just pretend that David Fisdale is the problem, all right? Let's try to see what the ideal coach would look like for the New York Knicks. What skills would this coach need to have to be able to succeed? And so I laid this all out in like a mock job listing uh, for a story I wrote for the Washington Post, a a little column, but bear with me. It's like the ideal Knicks coach has to be able to inspire and command a locker room because they have the worst collective record since 2014, right? So you have to be able to completely overhaul a culture. He also has to be an incredible X and O's coach because he's going to have to somehow make four power forwards work at the same time. He's also going to have to have a Greg Popovich-like ability to kind of zag when everybody else is zigging because they don't have a premier playmaking point guard who's trustworthy and they don't have a lot of shooting and they don't have premier wing playmakers. They're built around all these front court guys who don't really, you know, gel together. So you're going to have to construct some basketball philosophy that is just different from sort of what best practices are, uh, you know, in today's game. Now, on top of that, you're going to have to be able to be a mentor and develop young players in a matter of months, because as we've seen, front office gets, uh, you know, front office and ownership gets 
really into the flavor of the month idea, and they're willing to move on from a player, even a guy like Kristaps Porzingis, because it's not coming together properly. From there, uh, you know, you've got to be able to take all the bullets in the media. You've got to be able to be willing to be thrown under the bus uh, by the front office, as these guys just did this past weekend. You've got to be able to have thick enough skin to survive uh, you know, the barbs that guys like Kevin Durant are putting out there about the Knicks franchise and how young players view it as, as not really being that cool of a place. And on top of that, you have to be prepared to work for an owner who's getting into legal disputes with rival owners, former legends, uh, and, you know, all sorts of just kind of public tiffs with media members uh, and the like. There is no person in the entire world who has all of those characteristics, Rob. It's a it's a set of zero people who could actually uh, find real success as the New York Knicks head coach. Well, I think there's even more than that too, because you also have to be kind of a peacemaker with this roster in terms of if you are going to be a developmental coach and a mentor, then you have to be able to sell to Taj Gibson and Marcus Morris and Julius Randle, these guys who came here for opportunities to show their stuff to other teams because they're on, remember, short-term contracts that you sign them to. You have to be able to appease them and say, hey, look, this is going to be okay that we're going through R.J. Barrett so much or Frank Nilakina or Dennis Smith or whoever it is. There's an impossible balance there because there's competing motivations for everybody involved on top of the fact that you just listed like 10 different criteria that, as you clarified, no coach has. I mean, I think there are lots of great coaches with lots of different skill sets. No one's as comprehensive in that way. No, Obama couldn't save this, man. I'm <laughs> serious. Like, there, It's not just there's no coach who has these skills. There is no person, period, in the world who could <laughs> fix this thing by himself. So if I'm David Fisdale, that's my stance towards the front office. Cool. Great story, guys. Uh, go ahead and fire me. Now, um, in terms of their on-court play, you know, I watched them against the Bulls the other night. They had moments where they're they're competitive, but then it just got away from them down the stretch. I mean, Kobe White went nuts. I think he had like seven threes, something like that, um, and just torched them. When you're looking at kind of their anchor pieces, uh, Dennis Smith Jr., R.J. Barrett, Mitchell Robinson, like I can understand how some observers or Knicks fans would have talked themselves into that that those guys at least, right? I mean, it, the Randall thing didn't really make sense to me. Having him, Taj Gibson, Marcus Morris, like all that together, was kind of nonsensical, right? But at least there could be the makings of a young core here with this group that could be exciting and fun to watch. But it really hasn't played out that way. Now I would give R.J. Barrett some credit for surviving through these tough uh, you know, circumstances and having some nice moments to start the season. But you know, where are you at on guys like Dennis Smith Jr. and Mitchell Robinson? Like, Are those cornerstone pieces to you? Are the Knicks uh, you know, in like year two or year three of the rebuild, or are they really sort of still stuck in year one? Like, How, how advanced do you think their roster building has, uh, has uh, progressed? I think they're still in year one, and and maybe that's even putting it kindly from the, that talent perspective, because I do Ooh. think R.J. Barrett's start has been pretty encouraging. You know, certainly from just watching him move around the court, I had questions of like, okay, how, how effective is this guy going to be as a dribble driver? Can he really get all the way to the rim on his drives, or is he going to be kind of more of a pull-up, floater, hook shot type finisher? But he has like an extra step to his drives that I'm not even sure how he gets to it because he's not the most explosive athlete off the dribble necessarily, but he's just creative enough. He's able to catch guys off guard. He, he can really get where he needs to go. And so then from there, it's okay, how do we get him to read the floor 
at an NBA level, at a professional level. And so that's where, as a young player, you're you know taking your time with that sort of thing. You're installing kind of levels to his reads because he, he is a pretty decent scorer and, and playmaker right out of the gate, which is, you know, all things considered for the Knicks, like all this other stuff is going to be a disaster based on everything that else, everything else that happens at all the other levels of your organization. At least you have this one guy who looks like he's a pretty legit prospect. The question is with all those other players that you mentioned, where Frank Nilekin is like perpetually, we're not really getting a great look at him because of his context, because of his confidence, because of how he measures up against NBA competition, as opposed to we saw him really ball out against international competition. Something is just never quite on balance with him. Dennis Smith has had, you know, some personal issues, obviously, to deal with this season. I don't think it's really fair to judge him based on what little he's been able to play or factor into the Knicks' plan so far. But based on his broader track record, I don't think there's a lot to be encouraged by. I think he's still kind of a straight-line driver who doesn't quite know what to do when defenses close up those straight lines. And Mitchell Robinson's kind of exactly where he was, which is maybe one of the most intriguing shot blockers in the league, but a guy who just can't help himself from a fouling perspective and from a discipline perspective, which, as we've seen historically, is a tough thing for coaches to really rely on defensively. Yeah, I mean, to me, it boils down, their their trajectory and timeline boils down to Dennis Smith Jr., right? If he can find a way to become a, you know, a lottery-level uh, you know, starting point guard, a guy who is worthy of his draft slot and, and some of the hype that he had coming out of college, then they're on to something, right? Uh, I have just not seen it yet. And you're right, we should be a little bit gentle here given the circumstances, but um, it wasn't the case before the trade from Dallas. It wasn't the tr- uh, case after the trade from Dallas. And if he's just not that guy, um, they are in year one right now. They're basically on RJ Barrett's timeline. And I think it's, you know, fair to give him a couple years before he's an impact making type of guy, uh, you know, at his position, right? So uh, it's all bad from New York. Uh, Of course, all roads lead back to ownership. Uh, It doesn't seem like there's really any progress on the idea that could he ever be convinced to sell the team? How many rebuilds are too many? But I'm already seeing people jump ahead to this idea that like, these players who they thought were going to be such great fits and and be capable of you know of winning basketball supposedly according to the front office are those guys now just trade chips like do you think this is going to be a garage sale fire sale type thing once we get to the trade deadline where all these random veterans just kind of get sent out in in, in uh, different directions across the league to teams who are maybe looking to plug a hole for the playoffs and the Knicks go forward just you know with uh with nothing but the studs of their roster left well, I think there's going to be no real motivation to keep them around from the perspective of trying to win immediately. But the question is, I mean, all these guys kind of ended up on the Knicks roster for a reason, right? And it's because the market for Julius Randle may not have been what Julius Randle was hoping for. or And you can kind of go down the line with players like that, where the Knicks were willing to pay a little bit more, give a little bit more guaranteed money or better bonuses to these guys to try to entice them. And some of them certainly have a place with other teams. But the question is, are teams going to want to trade for those slightly higher salaries? or for less, you know, fewer guaranteed years where maybe they would have been interested in signing a player on the Knicks roster to a long-term deal, but because they're on a two-year with an option, that that's not quite as intriguing, you know, a possibility to them. And so it's it's kind of tough if you're the Knicks. I think they can get some stuff, but what that stuff is ultimately worth is is an open question. You're talking probably about second-round picks or, or pretty heavily protected first-round picks. Maybe you can get some young players who are worth taking a flyer on or a look at, but they're, they're really kind of second draft type opportunities. Maybe, you know, young players who have been drafted and kind of disappointed for their previous teams and you want to give them a different, more, you know, extended look. 
Rob, you sound pretty, you know, down on them, and I don't understand. <laughs> like, I honestly, I don't understand why. Like, Masai Ujiri and Giannis are coming to save the day. I don't know if yep. you saw, you know, those rumors. Like, why is this such a pessimistic situation for you? Uh, no, obviously, I'm being sarcastic. Those rumors were so predictable and yet simultaneously so funny. Like, can you imagine the size of the check it would take to get Masai Ujiri to leave? I think he's basically the de facto prime minister in Canada at this point. Like, he basically runs the country um, and the organization, does whatever he wants, got a brand new ring, got the trophy. Uh, I bet his popularity rating within Canada is the highest of any specific person. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Um, maybe Pascal Siakam actually is pushing him at this point, but he, he's one or two, right? Um, how much money, seriously, would it take the Knicks, if you were negotiating, what price would you have to like use as your starting point to try to lure Masai? I'm picturing $20 million a year. Uh, <laughs> that sounds insane, but I really like... If you're a Messiah and they're going to give you a five-year, $100 million contract, do you do it? That, that I mean, maybe you think about it at that point, right? But if it's five for 50, there's no way he does it. I think Messiah needs to go for that Phil Jackson deal, which is, you know, if you if you love Toronto, stay and live in Toronto, work remote, show up in the Knicks offices like once every two months, uh, dispense some wisdom and check back out and then cash those checks. But let's put a price on this for real. Like what would be your price if you were a Messiah? Like, what's the number? You know, you slip the paper across the boardroom table to James <laughs> Dolan and say, hey, man, here's what I need to... I, I will be able to fix this because I turned the Raptors into a legit organization. I, I have the proof. Uh, you know, the proof is in the pudding with my work. Uh, I will do the same thing for you, but here's what I'm asking for. What's your number? I mean, I think you're getting well into that eight-figure territory and you would need certain assurances wow. that... I think you would need assurances that you're not going to be meddled with or managed down in the way that the Knicks historically have, which... Again, Phil is really the only guy who's gotten that assurance and, and has gotten the room to kind of do what he wanted to do. The irony of all that being that Phil didn't really understand, I don't think, the nuances of how to do that job in the modern era, where Masai does. Phil, Phil needed some meddling, is what you're saying. <laughs> he did need a little meddling. I don't know if he needed James Dolan's meddling, but he may have needed some meddling. Yeah, I, I'm serious. I think if I was Masai, my starting price is $20 million, And that might open some eyeballs, but that's where I'm at. Um all right. I think we've exhausted pretty much everything that we could say about the New York Knicks. Good news. I won't have to talk to them again uh, about them again until the trade deadline uh, because they just don't matter. Um, good luck, New York fans, uh, tonight against Kristaps uh, Porzingis, you know, Luka Doncic, and the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, that could be a painful loss. Or if they somehow win, it could be the win of the season at home in Madison Square Garden. So, uh, you know, boo your hearts out. Have a good time. And, you know, just realize that Porzingis is definitely in a better place than you guys are and uh, try not to dwell on that too much. All right, Rob, back out to the Western Conference, the show, as I like to call it. We have a great email from Jonathan, who's a big time Rockets fan. He sent, I would say, roughly 800 word love letter to James Harden uh, into openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail edgyable.com. I'm just going to read part of it. He writes, did you watch the game last night against the Clippers? Did you see James Harden absolutely dominate the so-called best player in the league? Did you see James Harden drop 47 points on only 26 shots while being double teamed by Kawhi Leonard and Patrick Beverly all night? Did you see him make the 
game-clinching defensive play by swiping it away from Kawhi, then running it down the floor for the reverse alley-oop to the ghost of Tyson Chandler. Can we get a little Harden love? And can you at least acknowledge that Harden needs to be in the discussion for best player in the game? I don't need you to declare him the best player in the league. Just please acknowledge he has earned the right to be in the discussion. So, Rob, Jonathan is coming in really hot here. Are you ready to make the acknowledgments? Are you ready to sort of bend the knee to James Harden like he's requesting? I mean, James Harden won the MVP. He was second in voting last year. He's made the All-NBA first team five times in the last six years. When was he not in the discussion for the best player in the league? Yeah, so I'm not sure he's in my discussion for the best player of the league. I'm not trying to troll Jonathan. And apparently Jonathan, I must have just like gone off on him at some point because he had like another 200 words basically saying like, I'm still listening to the show despite you torching me the last time I emailed him. So (laughs) I I appreciate his resolve. Um, So Jonathan, I'm not saying this to troll you, but if I look at it like who would I start a franchise with, uh, he's not my first pick. If I look at it as who was the best all-around player, uh, he's not my first pick. If I look at who's the best leader, he's not my first pick. If I look at who's the most accomplished postseason player, he's not my first pick. If I look at who has the biggest impact on winning, Harden's not my first pick. And so when I go through all those conversations, I can definitely come up with some names who are ranking higher than Harden in every single one of those categories. Now, this is not disrespect, right? I've probably been one of Harden's loudest defenders for the last five years. I think he's an historic scorer. He's one of the greatest offensive players I've ever seen. Um, Certainly the best and most consistent scoring threat the modern NBA has. Uh, He's past Kevin Durant, which, you know, coming from me says a lot because I I think Kevin Durant was basically right there with MJ in terms of like the the best individual scoring threats and all around scorers there, there were until Harden came along. So it's not disrespect, but look, man, you know what the knocks on Harden are. You know those knocks are legit. If you've been following him in the Rockets for the last five or six seasons, you know where the hiccups are. Uh, you know what the blind spots are, and those things matter. And he will get that coronation if he powers through in the playoffs. He will get the the you know what you believe is sort of long delayed love. If he kind of pulls it together in those moments, if he wins the big time head-to-head matchup in the postseason against a Kawhi Leonard or a LeBron James uh, or a Steph Curry, like that type of caliber player or a Giannis, right? But when you look at Harden's postseason record, he's lost to the Warriors a lot. He's also, and people forget, he's also beat a lot of the teams he was supposed to beat. But I'm not sure he has a signature like head-to-head triumph where he's the main guy on the team and you look and say he took his team was able to take down another, you know, best player candidate, their team in a playoff series convincingly. He hasn't done it. So how can he be in this conversation? Well, I think, you know, especially when Jonathan's not asking for him to be the best player, be named the best player, but just to be somebody you would even consider, I think you would have to for just, you know, when you run through all of those kind of different dimensions you were talking about, is he the best leader? Is he the best, you know, playoff performer, offensive player? The answer to a lot of those questions is no, but James Harden might be the second or the third player on that list for a lot of those different uh, those different attributes. I think that's how he gets into this, where... Well, for best leader, he's not... <laughs> okay, okay. Top ten. He's not top 10. I mean, come on, like, you know... Well, but I guess I, I your, mean, your, I think, your point your point is taken though. Like, there's a few of those categories where he scores very well, and stati- individual statistics, team offensive efficiency, 
he's got a case as the best or you know top two guy for the last five six years it's basically him and Steph right yeah I mean in terms of guys who can guarantee you 50 wins guys who have ultimately pretty good health and not a lot of injury concerns especially for a player as high usage as he is and that's not even getting to the fact that he may be the best offensive player of his generation and certainly the best at kind of maximizing what it means to play in the modern NBA I mean this, this start to the season, I think, is a great kind of case study in Harden where he's not even shooting that well yet. Like He's 41% from the field right now. He's 32% from three. And yet, true shooting-wise, he's still over 60% while almost scoring 40 points a game. And that's because his shot distribution is so heavy on threes, and he gets to the free throw line so much even still, even while relying on the step back as much as he does that I think he has to be in that conversation because he has the one thing offensively that you really can't take away. That that step back three, which if it's going, will absolutely sink you. And if it's not, he has the passing and the driving to kind of work around some of that stuff. So I think he is in that conversation one way or another. But to kind of, you know, I do I don't want to take away Jonathan's Stockholm syndrome and your relationship with him. I want him to still feel like we're harping on James a little bit to no, say. Oh no, no. I, I think it's great. I think you're saying, hey Jonathan, I'm throwing you a bone here, man. He <laughs> is in the conversation. So Jonathan, look, Rob and I are kind of caught up here again semantically, but he's willing to give you that uh that love. Hopefully that's good enough for you. I'm not quite there. To me, the conversation for best player uh in the sport is three guys, Kawhi, LeBron, and Giannis. Those are the three. And you know, that leaves out a lot of really good players. It leaves out MVP winners. It leaves out MVP candidates, you know, guys like Harden, Dame Lillard, Anthony Davis, um, you know, Steph Curry. A lot of these guys are big time players. Uh, but that's my conversation at this point. And, uh, you know, I, I anxiously look forward to Harden proving me wrong because, uh, I still think the conversation around him is so bogus. I like your effort, Jonathan, to try to you know reshape this thing and, and bring it back to reality and to show respect to what Harden does because everybody takes him for granted. I mean, the 40 pluses, the 50 pluses, night in, night out, five, six straight years, as Rob was saying, doing it uh, with varying degrees of help, but also not really ever getting hurt and putting it all on his shoulders. It's spectacular stuff. And People love to get sidetracked with the, hey, did you see the Reddit strip club analysis? <laughs> well, guess what? Here's my analysis. James Harden scores a lot of points basically every single night, and he's done it for six straight years, okay? Like, congratulations. Like, I'm glad that he might have fun every once in a while after midnight. The real story about Harden is the consistency. Um, and look, we know the greatest ability is availability, and Harden has been very, very available. I just want to see him, his uh, offices remain open through April, May, and June. That's all I'm asking. Well, especially when I think when you look at his playoff record and the Rockets' playoff performance overall, there's no way to frame them in which he isn't at least somewhat culpable. You know, it's, it's not a case of, oh, he just didn't have the help he needed. Uh, the players around him just missed shots. I think some of those things are certainly true to an extent, but he's always kind of a participant in the Rockets' own demise in some way or another, whether that's, you know, lacks attention defensively off the ball. I think we saw, you know, against the Clippers that on the ball against a guy like Kawhi, as Jonathan mentioned, can be really effective, really strong, really good hands. He can, you know, when he takes those matchups personally, he can be really good. But when he falls asleep, off the ball when he falls asleep you know doesn't get back in transition uh when his shot isn't falling and his game kind of falls a little bit off balance I think we see some of that stuff so there's really no way to kind of navigate his playoff record and say oh this is totally not his fault when you have year over year of evidence and at least reason to think hey is this guy quite as good as maybe the three best players in the league I think that's a pretty reasonable threshold to stop at yeah and 
I mean, I'm not blaming him for the playoff stuff. I actually defend him more than most people would. As you're saying, he's a factor, but he's not the leading factor. Uh, so, you know, it's not like I think he's going to choke for the rest of time. If he broke through and won a title this year, it would stun me because he's carrying Russell Westbrook, you know, and that's kind of the factor that would be shocking to me. But Harden breaking through and finally having his day in the sun, uh, you know, in general, it wouldn't have surprised me. And I think if they had kept Chris Paul, uh, I would have been much more likely to view them as sort of like, you know, top shelf championship favorites. Hey, we got another question here. Well, I guess not really a question. It's actually a tweet from Tim McMahon of ESPN. Uh, he has a quote from Russell Westbrook who says, Pat Beverly is trying to trick y'all like he's playing defense. He doesn't guard anybody. He's just running around doing nothing. And this comes on the heels of Harden, obviously scoring 47 against the Clippers. So Westbrook and Beverly have the history. Beverly is, of course, the guy who sort of like lunged at him during the playoffs years ago, wound up leading to a a knee surgery and kind of ending prematurely a potential title run for those Oklahoma City Thunder, uh, you know, back when Westbrook was there with Kevin Durant. So the bad blood is real. They've had some kind of on-court scuffles in the years since. Harden and Beverly are always getting tangled up and, you know, flopping around the court and, uh, you know, jaw jacking, whatever you want to call it. Um... Is Westbrook speaking any truth here, or is this just, you know, entirely trash talk? What do you think, Rob? I think it's entirely trash talk, but also like a thousand percent justified given the fact that Patrick Beverly blew out his knee for no reason other than because he really wanted to be Patrick Beverly on that play. Uh, if anyone has an excuse or a good reason to talk some shit to Russell Westbrook or to Patrick Beverly, I would think it would be Russ. Yeah, a kid in college actually did blow out my knee. He basically like undercut me and it required ACL surgery. And I will tell you, uh, the whole importance of forgiveness in life, you know, like the idea you're going to move forward, don't hang on to the negative baggage. If someone blows your knee out, that's when that forgiveness ideal really gets tested, right? Because it's pretty easy to turn that person into the devil as you're doing your, you know, horrible, uh, you know, knee rehab grind work. You're on the treadmill the stair step or the leg lifts you know day after day after day trying to get the strength back it's very easy to hate that person and that's just for some random schmo like me let alone a hyper competitive you know incredible professional athlete so i understand the resentment um i'm not advocating for forgiveness but i do think that once i got over a little bit mentally i was in a, a better place so maybe russell just you know consider it you know think about it um I actually think there's some truth to what he's saying, man. Um, I don't think Beverly is a bad defender. I think that he makes a lot of really smart plays. He's great at taking charges, great at deflections, poking the ball free, getting under ball handlers, making them uncomfortable. But I do think that his reputation at this point exceeds his impact from a defensive standpoint. I think part of that is just because he's been this leader for the Clippers, you know, this kind of... uh, you know, this big personality for them, uh, one of the main draws, I think, you know, when you're talking about their culture and like who they've become, like without Beverly, the Clippers can't really sell themselves to this blacktop team. Uh, you know, this, this team that's, you know, not about the, the spotlights. They're all about the streetlights. Like basically all of their current branding is sort of just like the Pat Beverly show. And I think, um, you know, his best moments are remembered, but from a consistency standpoint, uh, I think he, he lives on his reputation a little bit. I mean, of course, Kevin Durant just absolutely torched him during last year's playoffs. So that's like one example. But I just think kind of night to night, uh, he is 
a potential weak link for the Clippers, right? Like if you're looking at when they're fully healthy, I love Kawhi, love Paul George, love Shamit, uh, you know, love their big man rotation, especially when Montrez is in there. Still like Lou Williams as kind of a change of pace score, although obviously his defense is really rough. Um, but I think the question mark that if this Clippers ha- the Clipper roster has one right now is that point guard spot. And, you know, is Beverly going to be uh, enough of a contributor on both sides to warrant the acclaim that he gets? And he's done a lot of trash talking too. You know, I mean, he went at Steph Curry uh, during that game up in Golden State. He's always going after the Lakers every time that they play that crosstown rivalry. And I think, uh, you know, he's just one guy to circle if you're looking at the Clippers and how this potentially could go wrong. Uh, you know, he is one guy I've got my eye on. Well, I think a lot of it in terms of his defense is just our bias to the ball, right? And it's the same thing that, you know, Avery Bradley got wrapped up in this, Tony Allen to an extent, although Allen, I think, is more of a team defender necessarily than, than those other two guys. But we're so locked in on the idea of, you know, Pat Beverly guarding Russell Westbrook or guarding James Harden. And especially, I mean, with the way Harden in particular plays, it lends itself to that kind of like one-on-one kind of dissection. But if you really dig into the data and the history of defensive success and like what the really good defensive teams are actually doing and who are the players who are contributing to that, very rarely is it the one stopper who's really making the difference in terms of that defense. It's usually the help guys, it's the rotating defenders, it's the overall scheme. There's just, there's so much bias to the ball and some of that comes from the fact that we're not accustomed to or very good at calibrating for the things that we don't see, right? It's the it's the drives that a guy chooses not to make because Rudy Gobert or Joel Embiid is back there, or they pass away rather than try to attack Kawhi Leonard off the dribble, or they don't even try to make the cut that they might make against a smaller guy because they know that a bigger Ranger defender is in, you know, in, in a pursuit. And so that's the thing with Beverly where his hustle, I think, is great. And he'll come down with, you know, one or two rebounds a game or one or two loose balls a game that you really don't expect him to. And it's it's just him going and getting it. But overall, when you're that size of player and when your primary value on the court is on-ball defense, there really just is only so much you can do. That was very, very well said, Rob. Um, I'm going to move on to the next question because you nailed it. Uh, it comes in from Peter. He writes, I believe that the Western Conference is superior to the Eastern Conference and will stay superior. But with several Western Conference teams starting in disappointing fashion, and he lists Golden State, Portland, and New Orleans, and with Toronto, Boston, and Indiana all playing better than expected, are the conferences more balanced than we all thought they would be? Will the West reestablish dominance over the East? So just to provide some context here, Rob, uh, the West is 32-28 and against the East so far head-to-head. So they're winning, I think it's like 53% of the games, but it's it hasn't really separated at this point, and it hasn't been overwhelmingly dominant yet uh, from one side to the other. So, you know, we we love, especially I love as a Western Conference elitist to really like lean into this idea of the show versus AAA, or as I called it recently, you know, the Sunrise Conference versus the Sunset Conference, where, you know, anyone can succeed when it comes to taking pictures of sunsets out there in the Eastern Conference. But if you're really going to put in the work and be great, you've got to wake up early and watch the sunrise. Um, what do you make of Peter's question here? Like, is the gap narrowing? Um, and if so, what would you point to as the reasons why? I think this is truly some Charlie Brown level stuff. And I would think that at this point, Ooh. we wouldn't get fooled by like charging at the football, trying to kick it every year we do this, that 
at the start of the season, the Eastern Conference is looking pretty good, and we have these questions about conference balance, and then by the end of the year, the same thing happens every time, which is that there are four good Eastern Conference teams or five good Eastern Conference teams, and the rest of them are just awful. Like, you know, comparatively, when you're looking across conferences, and you can even see some of that now where if you break it down into the top eight, two of the top eight teams in the East have losing records. And so, you know, I don't want to take anything away from, you know, Philly and Milwaukee and Toronto and Boston. Like, they've had really good starts so far. I think those are good teams. Outside of those teams, there's a lot of wild cards. There's a lot of question marks. And especially when your point of comparison is like, oh, let's look at how disappointing the Warriors and the Pelicans and who was the other team? Oh, uh, and the Blazers. Let's look at how disappointing these three teams are. Three teams that are dealing with significant injuries across the rotations to really critical players. And so... I wouldn't say it's surprising that those teams are doing poorly. I would say it is surprising that teams like the Suns and the Mavs have kind of worked their way into the mix and are even better than expected. I, I just am not buying this whatsoever. I think we there's just too much evidence to suggest that the West is overwhelmingly and consistently better than the East. Well said. Also, I just think it's too early. To, it hasn't shaken out yet, you know? Like, I think sometimes within the first month, we know who the playoff teams are basically going to be. And I don't feel that way at all in the Western Conference, right? I, I think that there's still 11, 12 teams, uh, I mean, arguably 13 teams uh, who could potentially squeeze into a playoff spot if you want to be generous. And depending on how they handle the trade deadline and all that, we're less than a month into the season. Um, and so fr- from that standpoint, I think we got to let it play out you know, quite a bit more. Now, I do think, though, that the second tier or the so-called second tier in the Eastern Conference has been um, a legit positive story. I came into the year really only respecting two teams, Philly and Milwaukee. I thought everybody else was going to be a distant, you know, distant second to those two. Now, Toronto, who I like coming in, has definitely exceeded even my optimistic expectations. Teams like Boston, uh, Miami, and Indiana have definitely... Uh, played better than I expected. Now, from that group, um, is there a team that I really see like being a championship contender? Can I really picture Toronto or Boston, Miami or Indiana, you know, surviving the the preseason top two? No, not really. I think that Giannis would wind up dominating a series against all of those teams and Milwaukee would go forward, right? Uh, and a similar deal with Philadelphia. I think they, they still have some things to work out. Um, but I think they would be able to prevail over most, if not all, of those teams in a in a playoff setting. So uh, I'm kind of caught in between there, where I'm giving these second tier teams in the Eastern Conference credit. I'm still not totally buying what they're selling, um, but I think it's good for the league that at least they showed up and and they've uh, gotten off to strong starts. Because otherwise, you are looking at this kind of barren Eastern Conference landscape where it's impossible to talk yourself into the Cleveland Cavaliers as a playoff team as like being a fun, exciting storyline. Sorry. It's, I just can't do it. I don't have the heart for it. I don't have the energy for it. I am all in on the Trey Young uh, bandwagon. But if you're trying to tell me they're going to be ready to win playoff series this season, I can't get there. I'm not with you. And same deal with the Brooklyn Nets. I was selling the Brooklyn Nets before the season started, and they've been just sort of like typically disappointing or kind of right to my expectations, hovering around 500, being very inconsistent and not really having the same verve they had last year, right? So uh, I don't know. I think that the the amount of flotsam there is in the Eastern Conference, just teams that don't matter, Knicks, Wizards, Bulls, uh, you know, Charlotte Hornets, like that pack of teams is so deep 
that I would still say as long as all four of those teams are in the East, they're going to be a worse conference in the West. Well, and the one team we haven't mentioned that deserves a lot of credit is the Heat, too, in terms of they they really have come out strong, both with and without Jimmy Butler. They haven't had to rely on him as like a, a Harden-esque kind of ball-stopping superstar. Like They have a really cohesive team. We've seen bounce-back seasons from guys like Goran Dragic, for example, strong seasons across the board from Bam Adebayo, from all of their supporting pieces. I think they have a team that really makes sense. And so when you look you know, at, at the leaderboards in the league and you see that you know, teams like the Heat and the Raptors and the Celtics are all top five and six teams in net rating. Like that's where the improvement is the East in the East is to your point about kind of the second tier. It really is that group that's been really impressive. And we'll see how much that lasts over the course of the season, if there's some any inconsistency there. But I do think it helps to have them in that mix. And it's not so much right now about can they beat the Sixers or the Bucks, because I agree with you. I think those are still the two teams to watch in well, terms yeah. of a finals appearance. I was going to flip that to you. Do you see one of those teams, whether it's Miami, Boston, uh, Indiana, Toronto, could any of those teams come out and win win, win the conference? Uh, and if so, which one? I don't think they could win the conference, but I do think they could spoil. You know, it's if, if the Sixers just have a really rough shooting series or the Bucks, you know, the similar situation where both those teams I think you would trust defensively. But the question is always around Joel Embiid and around Giannis. What if the threes just aren't falling for two games when they really need to fall? And a team like the Heat or the Celtics or the Raptors just comes out and kind of punches them in the mouth a little bit and steals a game or two. Sometimes that's a difference in a series. And so I could see one of these teams like, you know, surprising the Sixers or the Bucks in the second round potentially. I just don't see them making out of the conference alive as they're currently constructed. But then the, then the question is, if you are, you know, the general manager, the team president of one of these groups, do you look at your roster now and say, oh, we're a little closer than I thought. Maybe we're able to trade a first round pick or a younger player on our team, get something in return and get on to that level with the Bucks and the Sixers. Man, it would be so funny if Boston or Toronto upset Philadelphia. That would be absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and it would it would put their stars and their front office on under such a microscope after the way the last, you know, twelve months have played out. Especially if Jimmy Butler and the Heat are the team to do it. Can you imagine uh, oh, the storyline? Stories would write themselves. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs, and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020 Bank of America Corporation.
Hey, we've got another question from a Peter, but this Peter's from Poland. He writes, I saw the Wolves go six for 45 on three pointers. My thought midway through the third quarter was they kept shooting simply based off the math. It has to average out at some point, right? Well, it didn't, unfortunately, for the Timberwolves. So this led me to a philosophical question. Is this the quote-unquote right way to play basketball? Is it okay for seven-foot dominant centers to roam the three-point line and shoot threes? Is it okay for a team to completely abandon the paint game? I am curious to know the opinion of the keeper of tradition, member of the Order of Popovich and the Spurs Sanctuary. Is this fine, and will this ever shift to a more smash-mouth-in-the-trenches style? Peter, thank you for all of those uh, very kind superlatives. I'm I'm glad to be all of those things. Rob, I've got some takes on this, but I'm really curious what you think. I mean, clearly, the role of the three-point shot in the modern NBA has been something that we've kind of dissected from every angle here over the last five years, basically since Steph Curry's rise. Um, But, you know, Peter's pointing out that, you know, in some situations— uh, a three might not necessarily be uh, a magic formula. Uh, so what do you think? I mean, is this a situation where it's kind of an anomaly for this the Minnesota Timberwolves in this one game? Um, or are we getting to a, a point where it's almost like market saturation? What do you think? Well, I do think it always depends on the context, right? It depends on who's shooting the threes, how your team is set up. And a lot of that comes down to kind of the psyche of your team and whether everyone is bought in on the concept. Because if you have players on your team who don't believe in taking that many threes, who want their paint touches or want this or that, want to you know, orient the offense in a different way, then they're going to start slacking in other areas when those shots stop falling. They're going to get frustrated. They're going to get fed up with the way the ball isn't moving or that it's moving away from them or whatever it is. So you need to be kind of cohesive as a unit philosophically when you're, when you're going into those situations. But... I mean, in this specific case, like I looked up the the splits for this game. Yes, the Wolves took 45 threes, but they also took 53 shots in the paint in the same game. And so it's not like the one is at the expense of the other. I think what the Wolves have taken away is like Gorgie Jang turnaround jumpers and Andrew Wiggins, you know, pulling up for mid-range stuff. And I think, you know, since we're talking about the Wolves and their shot distribution, we have to talk about Andrew Wiggins and the fact that he's really leaned out a lot of his game. I think he's having, you know, probably the most impressive stretch of, of his career from a playmaking standpoint, from a shot creation standpoint, has done really well. And I think is kind of case in point in terms of what teams like the Wolves can do by getting a little bit leaner in terms of the shots that they take. And so it's not always pretty when, you know, guys who are 33 to 35% three-point shooters are chucking away from beyond the arc, but the math says it's good. If your process is good in creating those shots, if those are open shots or at least, you know, semi-open shots, I think you can live with them. But ultimately, it's going to come down to what your team can stomach. And if you're the kind of people and the kind of organization that can put up with some of those misses, knowing that you're going to get there in the end, then I think that time has proven that that's the right way to play basketball. Right. So a couple of thoughts just to underscore some of the things that you said. First of all, Peter, it's not necessarily about a raw number of three-pointers. Keep in mind, the most important thing is shot quality. And Rob was hitting on that. Who's taking the shots? Where are they taking the shots from? Can they shoot those shots at a high percentage consistently? And how open are those shots? Those are the key questions that you want to look at when you're diagnosing a healthy offense, right? And if you have good shot distribution, if you're getting clean looks, if the ball is moving well, if you have good scoring offensive players and you know good spacing, which is you know what you're looking for from a good modern offense, it will guarantee to show through the numbers. Like You will be able to see it. Now, for Minnesota right now, they're middle of the pack in offensive rating. Right now, they're 16th. So that tells me, even though they have made some of these strides that Rob's mentioning, 
particularly with getting much better play from Wiggins here lately, um, there's still room for them to grow. They have a guy who's a sensational offensive talent in Carl Anthony Towns. Um, to me, their ceiling, even though they don't have a great point guard and even though maybe their shooting from the wings, uh, supporting shooters could be a little bit better, um, their ceiling should be a top 10 offense in the league, right? I mean, Towns should be able to kind of support them and, and bring them to that point. So that means they're a work in progress. But we didn't necessarily think that they were going to come out and, and light the world on fire with their offense this season because, you know, I, I think in general, Towns doesn't have that much help. So that's part of it. Now, to your question about seven-footers roaming the the three-point uh, three line, Rob made a great point. They're not sacrificing everything inside, right? Having centers who are capable of being out of the paint is unequivocally a good thing for offenses. Look at Aaron Baines in Phoenix. Look at all the teams like Atlanta from years past that tried to play five-out styles. Just imagine that you're a point guard and you're trying to break your guy off the dribble. Do you want any bodies behind that guy or would you rather have an empty paint? And if you're trying to finish and beat your man, do you want to have those help defenders, you know, forced to cover an extra six or seven feet to come contest you? Or do you want them kind of hanging out right on the edges of the paint, ready to swat you into the stands, right? These are easy questions to answer. So uh, we should all be as a society over the criticism of seven footers who are on the three-point line. That's healthy. That's positive. We do want that. Um, The things that you don't want, are bad shots, low low shot quality shots. And so when you hear me banging on guys who take too many mid-range shots, it's not necessarily that they're taking, they're walking into a wide open 15 footer. If a guy can hit that shot, I'm fine with it. But if he's, you know, pirouetting, you know, deking, double faking, trying to just do his best MJ impersonation and, and shooting it off his back foot over a defender, and he's not able to hit that specific shot a lot, and he shoots it too much, that drives me crazy because that guy is not sticking to a script that makes sense. He's just, you know, basically playing for himself, not for his team. So hopefully, Peter, that gives you a little bit to think on as you uh, watch these games going forward. And just remember, you know, if you're expressing audible disgust when you look at a shot a guy takes um, because it's too hard of a shot or it's something that he just can't hit or he's doing too much, um, that's the red flag for me. You know, I have a very hard time controlling myself, even when I'm at games in a media capacity. It doesn't matter for which team. If a guy just takes a horrible shot, a lot of times I'll just kind of be like, Gah! you know, I'll just do one of those. And uh, if you have too many of those within one game, that's an unhealthy offense. Well, I think it's okay too to aesthetically want a little bit more diversity or want, you know, some high level post play. It, it's okay to want those things. But I think the fundamentally when you're looking at a return standpoint like what is the best offense we can run to score the most points per possession the way to think about threes is that they create those paint shots they create opportunities to get to the free throw line they you know to your point ben when you have centers who can shoot it's in service of those other things it's not replacing them what we're taking away is some of the fatty mid-range stuff that doesn't really work out that well for anyone but the absolute most elite players and so in the absence of a kevin durant do we really want to be taking these long twos quite so often and so i think that's where teams like the wolves are fighting that fight and trying to get their shot distribution to a healthier place place and in their case specifically in their kind of average offense for one it's not just that they don't have great point guards right now but they don't have any point guards you know Jeff Teague and Shabazz Napier have both been out of the lineup which is why Andrew Wiggins has been you know had to create so many you know opportunities for other people it's why you know Jarrett Culver and Josh Okoge these guys have been kind of uh provisional point guards given their circumstances but when that roster is fully healthy is a little bit more functional I think you'll see their offense get to a better place ultimately for the rest of the season 
Great point. And on Culver, like if we could fast forward two or three years, I think that's going to be a big part of his game. You know, I think he's got a little bit of that on ball playmaker, you know, lead type, lead type uh, playmaker to him. Hopefully it comes out. You know, I, I want to see that development. You know, he has some work to, to really do it on the NBA level, but he showed some of that in college. And I, I hope that's where his story ends because I think he could be a really, really fun player in that environment. And uh, just last point on this. We're guilty on this podcast, but also in general, of harping, harping, harping on the contested long twos, right? It's not just the contested long twos. It's also contested short twos, right? If you're a small, you know, if you're a one or a two going into the paint and there's multiple guys on your team in the paint and multiple defenders in the paint and you're putting up a runner, you're putting up a teardrop, you know, you're, you're trying to do a floater, you're trying to get through traffic and hoping to draw a foul, those are clearly, for most players, lower percentage shots than a wide open three or the type of layup you're going to get if you have a five who can space the court and, and let you go to work one-on-one, right? There is a huge gap in efficiency between uh, you know contested short twos and uncontested short twos or more open short twos within a kind of a spaced lineup, right? And it's easy to think, well, hey, like he, he broke down the defense, so he's going to put up a shot from five feet. That's a good shot. It's not necessarily, especially by the numbers. You'd way rather have a guy who's a league average corner three-point shooter getting an in-rhythm, you know, drive and kick three-pointer. There's just no question about that. So um, keep that in mind too. It's not just to come and bury guys, you know, like uh, DeMar DeRozan to say, oh, this guy's game is broke and he he just focuses on the wrong things. Um, You know, if you get into tight situations, you don't have a space court, you're going to be making compromises on how good your shots can be. And sometimes you can take bad shots that are still just not even that far from the hoop. And that's enough on that subject. Hey, Rob, we got another kind of philosophical question that we debated last week where, uh, you know, Damien wrote in and he said, hey, guys, I've been listening to this podcast for over a year now. Thanks so much. I always look forward to the end of the day so I can listen on the ride home. Damien, I've said this before, but being the commute pod is the highest honor that you can give uh, as a listener to our podcast. So I appreciate you for putting us in that commute spot. I'm cool with the workout pod. I don't want to be the going to bed pod. I don't want to be the multitasking while at work pod. Okay. So just everybody on notice, you can listen as you're getting ready in the morning. I'll be the shower pod. I'll be the commute pod. I'll be the workout pod. Keep us in one of those three slots. All right. Now, anyway, Damien, you asked another philosophical question. Uh, Ben, you and Rob were kind of debating about the the merits of a two-way player versus an all-around player. And uh, Ben, you said that James Harden would be the best all-around shooting guard, but he wouldn't be uh, the best two-way shooting guard. Who do you see as the best two-way player at that spot? And then are there other players who you would distinguish as sort of like the quote-unquote best two-way type players? So uh, it's a good question. I don't want to go, you know, diving back into the semantics of this necessarily, but for me, the best two-way shooting guard would be a guy like Jimmy Butler, if you consider him a two. Some people might consider him a three. Um, You know, Clay Thompson would be a great candidate for that. I mean, if you look at the point guard spot, you know, the first name that really comes to mind for me in terms of the best two-way point guard uh, would be a Drew Holiday. Well, I would consider, you know, Steph the best all-around point guard because of his offensive impact. Um, You know, you look at wings, I think right now, if you're looking at that small forward spot, uh, Kawhi Leonard deserves to be considered the best two-way small forward. Uh, You could have an argument whether it's him or LeBron for the best all-around small forward. At the power forward spot, I would say it's Giannis 
as the best all-around player and the, and also the best two-way player. Um, and, you know, Anthony Davis is sort of like checks both those boxes too. Incredible all-around player, incredible two-way player. At the center spot, I would still go Jokic as my top center, um, but I think Embiid has the, has the two-way title. So, Rob, you, you kind of get what Damian's getting at, and I know you and I didn't totally agree on this, but do you have any other names to kind of throw into this mix here when it comes to that two-way designation um, or not? You know, I don't agree with your designation. I refuse to respond to it, and I want to issue a formal apology to James Harden, the true best two-way shooting guard in the league. So are, are you basing that off of uh, the big defensive play that the emailer uh, <laughs> mentioned earlier? But it doesn't bother you a little bit, this idea that, like, you could have players who are, you know, years worth of below average, you know, defensive impact. And look, Harden has found ways to be really helpful defensively, right? But I would not consider him to be a lockdown defensive guy. I don't think that's really ever been his reputation. Uh, you don't want to have some way where you can kind of like differentiate between the, the, the stars and the guys who can really get it done on that end. It doesn't bother you? Well, I think that if you're building a team, there are definitely cases where you would say, even though James Harden is maybe a better player overall than a Paul George or a Jimmy Butler or a Clay Thompson when healthy or one of those guys, that maybe based on your circumstances, you would prefer one of those players based on the build of your team and your specific needs. Because if you need a wing stopper, James Harden is clearly not that guy. But I think the fundamental difference in the way you and I think about this is like, if you say two-way player, I think about that as offense plus defense equals ultimately your rating as a two-way player, where I think you approach as more as like the average between your offense and defense and what the highest number of that would be. Uh, but to me, like if you're an overwhelmingly great offensive player, it just kind of dwarfs whatever it is that you're not doing on defensively, unless you're just an abject disaster on that side of the ball. There you have it, Damien. Two very different schools of thought. Rob and I will go to our graves debating uh, the semantics <laughs> of what of what math formula we're using. Is it offense plus defense, or is it offense divided by or plus defense divided by two? Exactly. How are we arriving at our two way formula? Uh, I, I think um, we're going to be in in different schools of thought for the end of time. Rob, we've got one last email here to close out the show. And man, it's a doozy. It's from Adam in the UK. And he's uh, chiming in on the conversation we had on the last episode, Rob, about the most memorable basketball game that you've covered while you were at SI. And it was, of course, Clay Thompson's Game 6 explosion in Oklahoma City. And he he said it brought back the memories for him. So here's what Adam's story uh, has to say. He writes, my wife and I had booked an epic four-week road trip across the United States, driving the entirety of Route 66 from Chicago to LA. Now, Rob, when I was doing that drive, I learned that uh, deep-fried hot dogs are actually just corn dogs, and I drove about 30 miles out of my way to have a deep-fried hot dog, only to show up and realize <laughs> that it was just a corn dog. I was suckered in by a roadside sign, and... Uh, Boy, was I disappointed. This was back in the days before I was a uh, vegetarian. Anyway, Adam writes, we took a few detours to some epic national and state parks. Shout out Grand Canyon, Painted, Painted Desert, Petrified Forest, and my favorite, Monument Valley. Monument Valley is phenomenal, Adam. I put up a couple pictures there on my Instagram. Everybody can go check that out 
at Ben Oliver. Anyway, Adam writes, as the trip approached, I was following the NBA playoffs very closely, and I realized that when the Thunder went up 2-1 in the conference final series, that if they beat the Warriors in that series, there would be an NBA finals game at the Chesapeake Arena in Oklahoma City the same day I was supposed to get there for a one-night stopover. This was destiny. Then, of course, the Thunder blew out the Warriors in Game 4 to go up 3-1, and I bought advanced resale tickets on StubHub for what would have been the finals, uh, the finals game when I was in town. When Game 6 came around, I think we all knew it was do or die for the Thunder. There was no way they would win at Oracle in Game 7 if it went back there 3-3. I missed the end of my wife's birthday party and stayed up through the entire night only for Clay bleeping Thompson to crush my dreams. I ultimately saved about $1,200 on the StubHub tickets and had a great time exploring Oklahoma City anyway, but I have hated Clay Thompson ever since. The fact that that game has become so iconic really annoys me. It's my single greatest basketball disappointment, excluding my beloved Mavericks losing the 2006 finals and the first round in 2007. Watching the Cavaliers win the title from my room in the Venetian in Las Vegas was kind of satisfying, but yeah, I guess I just wanted to say thanks for bringing that game up again and displaying it in the positive light that only Thunder fans and I refuse to accept. So incredible email from Adam and Rob. I mean, I'm just kind of sitting here with my head spinning from that whole story. What do you make of it? Well, I'm sure there's some German word for this psychic pain that you feel when you you see the stars aligning and it looks like there's just going to be this perfect moment of coincidence like Adam was talking about where there's an NBA Finals game in Oklahoma City on the day that you happen to be in Oklahoma City only for all of that to just completely fall apart. I know I have absolutely experienced that sensation before and it is crushing, although with slightly different circumstances, but... I hate. Oh, wait, to... wait, wait, wait! Do tell. We, let's get <laughs> let's get into these circumstances. What would it be? There, there's no great story. It's always just like you happen to be in a city, and maybe like a band that you love is going to be in the city, but they play the day after you leave, or it's the time of your flight. It's always. I feel like there's there's so many cases like this where things just don't quite up quite line up just right when you think that they might. Uh, and I I don't mean to rub it in for Adam, but the fact that he was in Las Vegas at the Venetian the night that the Cavs won to me just means if he and his wife had just been out at whatever club it was that the Cavs happened to fly into Las Vegas to party at, he may have missed the game, but he also missed the opportunity to party with LeBron and friends on the best night of their lives. Yeah, I think the underrated part of this story is that he basically missed his wife's birthday because of all this. Adam, the karma's on you, bro. Clay hit all those shots because you did not take care of number one, okay? If you had just laid out a perfect birthday party for your loving wife who was willing to go on a four-week road trip through the Southwest United States, which that is no small undertaking and which could test the, the bonds of every relationship. If you had just put her number one, I think NBA history is completely different. I think it's on your shoulders, Adam. I think you should probably, do you have his email address on hand? I think we should read it out. I think Thunder fans should be able to (laughs) funnel their frustrations about that game specifically to Adam now that we know who's solely responsible for the Thunder losing. Look, we're not going to ruin his life uh, for a second time for the same incident. But Adam, that's just something to keep on the next uh, to keep in mind the next time your wife's birthday rolls around. Okay, come on now. You you don't want any more, uh, you know, horrible twists of fate to uh, ruin your sports viewing experience. Hey, Rob. We made it to the end of your final episode. I want to say thanks again 
uh, for sticking with me here over the last few weeks as we've done this uh, you know, podcast, Open Floor. It's been so much fun. I learn something from you every time we talk, and I absolutely wish you the best uh, over at The Ringer, and I encourage all of the Open Floor Globe. Give my man Rob the clicks. Go check out what he's writing. I'm sure he's going to have stuff up here uh, in the very near future. Be sure to read uh, and, and follow along to all his work. He's on Twitter at Rob Mahoney. Now, I've been getting a lot of emails, messages on Instagram. Everybody thinks they can get the truth out of me on Instagram. I've noticed that my, my DMs tend to uh, you know pop off when, the, when there's real news to be uh, delivered. Everyone wants to know what's going on with the show. Okay, I don't want to tease you guys too much, all right? But... We're going on like planned. I said we were going to keep playing. We are going to keep playing. There will be, uh, you know, a new format or a, a new co-host next week. Check your feed. We will have the podcast up on Tuesday, like usual. You know, stick with us. Uh, I think it's going to be a really good time. I'm excited about it personally, uh, and we roll on. We we move forward. It, it's a never-ending um, experience here in Los Angeles. We got Trey Young coming for back-to-back games this weekend. Uh, you know, the storylines are not stopping anytime soon, and we're going to keep bringing you uh, all the analysis, the breakdowns, and the discussions. So stick with me. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Also, go to Apple Podcasts, find the page. It says, uh, by searching for Open Floor, you scroll down a little bit, it will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy. It really helps me spread the word. I'm on Instagram, as I mentioned earlier, at Ben.Golliver. Follow me there. And don't forget, check out my Washington Post newsletter too. Uh, the Post Up newsletter. Go to my Twitter page. You can find a link to subscribe. It's just that simple. Hey, Rob, thanks again. Uh, best wishes. Uh, and until the next time we happen to be on the phone together, I will talk to you. Later, Ben. And cheers to the Open Floor Globe. Alrighty.